Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes, as usual. And we are continuing a conversation, but picking up a new line of conversation. Many of you have listened to our previous episodes on the decline and renewal of the American church. These are articles written by Tim Keller over the last about 18 months that came out in the Gospel and Life Quarterly. And each time one of those came out, we've recorded a podcast episode just talking about the analysis. What's the state of the church? What's the state of uh, religion in America? What are the prospects for renewal? How are we going to bring this about? They're just really thought-provoking essays. And so what I thought we would do in this episode is reflecting on the recent death of Tim Keller. We've obviously published a few things already at So We Speak, remembering him. The week we speak last week was remembering him. Um, so we don't want this to just be another tribute to him, but but really a way to revisit what we think his legacy is, his impact on us. Um, so to borrow a phrase, we're we're not here to bury him, but to honor him in this episode and talk about the ways that maybe uh, his impact will be felt in the future. To begin that conversation, I wanted to just kick off with some of our first encounters and first and favorites with Tim Keller. How did you first come to know about Tim Keller and what kind of impact did he have on you? Well, my first to my recollection, my first interaction with Keller, like many people probably, was his 2008, I believe, book called The Reason for God. It was what piqued my interest was I knew this Keller guy had started a church in Manhattan. It wasn't huge by megachurch standards, but it was very impactful. And I was very interested in the thesis of the book. The first half of the book if you remember, or if you haven't read it, I recommend it, of course, is answers to questions he typically got from upwardly mobile Manhattanites. So these are younger people who are very culturally savvy, who are very career motivated. And these are the questions they had, and they're very typical questions. Why, why do you say there's only one way to God? How can a good God let suffering happen? They're some of the core questions that people always have, but what piqued my interest was the way he answered them. And he answered them from the point of view of someone who is very broadly read. So he had a very biblical understanding, and he was broadly read and could relate to them. Probably the closest biblical example would be Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. You can hear culturally relevant commentators, and you can hear biblically grounded commentators but it's rare to hear someone who can do both. And then the second half of his book were reasons to believe in God, not proofs of God's existence, but reasons to believe in God. And I loved the approach and I loved his approach. And I thought, you know, that would speak to any thinking person from a point of view that they could find a foothold in. If they grew up without the Bible, they could still find a foothold in the ideas that he was presenting. So that book had a profound influence on me in the way he went about doing it. And I suppose um, in a derivative way, it had an impact on you as well. Yeah, my first encounter with Tim Keller was you making me read that book. I say making me because I'm pretty sure when I was in high school, that's what it was. It was not willing <laughs> uh, reading, but giving me the book Reason for God telling me to read it over the summer. And then I think we had some discussions about it afterwards. Uh, that was my first encounter. But then but then Tim Keller really lay dormant in my cultural ecosystem for a long time. 
it wasn't until I got into ministry, what would have been six, seven years later, that I rediscovered Keller. What's interesting for us is, uh, you know, that was his first best-selling book. He had written a book before that on mercy ministry and deacons, which is what he did his demon over. Uh, but he, but that was his kind of public discovery. If you weren't right. in Manhattan, was the right. reason for God. And then after that, which I think was in two thousand eight, after that is when he started putting out almost a book a year for the last right. ten years or so. And so now he's a household name. But it's interesting that he kind of burst onto the scene with that book. Of course. 2001, 9-11, that was maybe the big moment where Tim Keller came on the scene for a lot of people. But if you were just reading his books, as we'll talk about later in this episode, he didn't write any books until late in life. And I think that was really a good thing for him. Uh, I think it made what he did write a lot better than it probably would have been. But secondly, it kind of Tim Keller was all of a sudden a household name because of what he was writing. And Reason for God was the thing that really kicked it off. Do you have any favorite books of his or writings, sermons, talks that he's given that played a big impact in your life? Well, yes, there are several. I think his book, The Meaning of Marriage, is one of the best biblically grounded books on marriage. And it's, to me, required reading for anybody that I'm involved with who's thinking about getting married because it's biblically grounded. It's not psychotherapeutic. It values certain communications techniques and things like that, but it fundamentally sets your expectations for marriage. And I found having been married a couple of decades when I discovered it, that it was helpful to me as well. So that book has been very helpful, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. As I became a pastor, coming out of the business world, became a pastor and began to learn this craft, if you will, uh, there were things, uh, an approach to pastoral care and uh, I gained a great deal out of that book. His book on uh, the Psalms, I know he's written a book on prayer, but his book on the Psalms actually did more for my prayer life. Hmm. So there are many ways in, in which he's impacted me. How about you? I think the first time I discovered Keller in the sense not related to apologetics, so he writes Reason for God, that was an apologetics book about coming to believe. The first time I discovered Keller outside of that realm was actually through a paper that he wrote that was kind of a really famous, impactful paper in church planting, especially in the Acts 29 world. There was a paper, It's I think the title of it is Leadership and Church Size Dynamics. It's all about how Leadership of the church, the emphasis of the leaders of the church changes as the church gets bigger. And that was a eye-opening moment for me on how much insight he had into the church itself. And I think to this day, my favorite book of his is probably Center Church, which is almost his textbook on doing church. And there's a, there's a lot of literature out there on how to do church. Church growth books, there's pastoral ministry books. What I love about Center Church is it's a manual for people thinking about the core necessities of what the church really is, and then learning to take the theoretical biblical side of it and apply it, contextualize it into your cultural moment. And that's what I think one of Tim Keller's best aspects is. I think 
most impactful books aside from that, I think Prodigal God is one of his best books. I think the we we kind of take for granted in the church world now the teaching of the prodigal son that focuses on the younger brother and the older brother. Mm-hmm. I think that was probably the first time I'd heard of that was when Keller taught that, and uh, that's captured in that book. So his preaching book is great. His prayer book is excellent. Uh, I think I said in the tribute that I wrote earlier this week, if there's a book on a topic that Keller wrote, it probably has been formational for me in thinking about right. that subject. Not the only one by any means, and not to say I agree with Keller on everything, uh, but he certainly is a conversation partner in anything that he's decided to write on. Well, I think when you're right, he's he certainly waited until his thinking was mature before he began writing. And I know that was intentional. I think he said he waited till he was about 60 years old to start writing because he wanted to make sure he had something significant to say. And I think uh, the world would be better if more people followed that advice. Uh, I think when the reason his books are impactful is they are the product of mature spiritual thinking and preaching over decades. And I think that you're right. He came, he seemed to burst onto the scene with a lot of mature ideas. And I think that's because he waited until his ideas had matured. I also like your point about he's well known as an apologist, but he's also a churchman. And I think Center Church, to me, the thing I like the best, you you are probably far more interested and far more capable in the idea of church planning and the role of the church in a city than I am by nature of my interest and, and my pursuits. Nevertheless, what impressed me about that was in the midst of so many people pursuing relevance for the church, he came at it in a much more biblical way. He wanted to take the gospel the biblical gospel, and contextualize it for the setting. Those two things couldn't be farther apart. And I really Mm -hmm. respected his approach, and we saw the fruit of his approach. He was able to build a church that actually had disciples, not just attendees. So I I, I liked I'm sure you have deeper thoughts on it than I, but I really appreciated his approach that avoided the relevance trap. One of the things I respect about him that you see a lot with really prominent pastors is, one, they they get, sometimes what happens is they get really, really famous, really prominent, and then they stop being pastors because they don't, it's not that they don't necessarily need to anymore financially. A lot of pastors, I think, that get really prominent don't need the money, but they have a platform that they're more interested in pursuing, speaking at different conferences. Now leading cohorts is a big deal, you know, so it's the some way or another, they stopped being a pastor. Keller was a pastor through and through. I, I love that about him. He he had pastored in a small context in Hopewell, Virginia. He had he had pastored in Manhattan, maybe the most important city on earth. He did retire from Redeemer, and I think he did that in a really good way, which we might get to later. But he was a churchman through and through in the sense that he was a pastor. But in addition to that, what else you see happen sometimes with pastors that get really prominent is they detach from any outside association. So they may be in a denomination, but they get big enough that they no longer really need the denomination. They're not major players in it. Um, Keller, this is twofold. Not only was his church big enough that especially for uh, the way that the Presbytery system in the PCA is set up, 
it probably was very inconvenient at times for him to exist within the PCA, where you have people that are basically in charge of your presbytery that don't have half the gift set that somebody like Tim Keller does, and yet he still right. was submitting to them. But the other feature of this that's interesting is he starts his own church planting network that has planted hundreds of church, Redeemer City to City. And they're rolling out ways to do church, plant churches, coach church planters. And yet Keller is still really involved with PCA church leadership to the extent that just two or three years ago when the PCA was doing their committee on sexuality in response to kind of the revoice and all of that, which we've talked about on the podcast before, he and Kevin DeYoung and some others were two of the people who led the committee to produce a report for the PCA General Assembly meeting about sexuality. So, I mean, he's he's waist deep mm-hmm. in his presbytery in the broader PCA, even as what we would consider, you know, I say this with air quotes, a celebrity pastor. Um, he's very well rooted. There's a lot of humility in that. But it also belies what, what one of his deepest motivating beliefs is, which is the church is the vehicle through which renewal is going to happen. Well, that's interesting because, you know, we talked to him as a churchman, but given that that is his belief, that the church is the vehicle that God will use for that, to what extent, you know, you think back in the 1700s, 1800s, you get these what I call revivalists, people that sparked or encouraged uh, an upswelling, a revival. What was Keller's involvement in what I'd call revivalism? If you read anything about Keller, you should read Colin Hansen's new book, Tim Timothy Keller. And it is far and away the most interesting book I've read in the last couple of years. It's not just a biography of Tim Keller. It's an intellectual biography of Tim Keller. So what Hansen is trying to do in this book is he is trying to capture the formative influences, mentors, thinkers, books that Keller read that all combined made Tim Keller who he was. And it's interesting in that book, the early part of Tim Keller's life is spent as an evangelist and a revivalist. And I think that part of him never really left. I think that was part of who he was all the way to the very end. And uh, if you think about Tim Keller, the word revivalist is kind of a funny word to use because you think of somebody who's a little bit more emotional or somebody who's a little more outwardly charismatic, whereas Keller is much more professorial, not a ton of dynamics, very cerebral. But his interest in revival stems all the way from the time when he was in college. So he came to Christ in a campus ministry, Campus Crusade, because they were people that wanted to dialogue with him about the questions that he was having in his faith. And so once he became a Christian, he loved doing that manning the book table at events and talking with people in small groups. And he set himself to study revival. If you read any of Center Church, you'll realize that the major formative influences in his thinking on the church, culture, revival, are people like Jonathan Edwards, who lived through the Great Awakening. He's very interested in the Puritans who experienced their own kind of revivals in, you know, after the Reformation. He's very interested in people like Jack Miller, 
who is kind of a church growth guy. His book, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, is kind of a church growth book, but it's really a book on how to build the altar of revival to see if the fire from heaven will fall, how to be a pace-setting leader in the congregation. Richard Lovelace, who is a huge impact on Tim Keller, his uh, dynamics of spiritual life, is all about cultivating the things that God describes and commands in Scripture that lead to a revival. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his book Revivals, is a really formative book for Tim Keller. And so what's interesting when you read the Tim Keller book by Colin Hansen is it's it's not just that Keller went to Manhattan and planted a really great church. It was right. that Keller moved to Manhattan, and at that time, the Spirit of God was working among a group of young people there that he became friends with and became the pastor to in this church plant. And a revival was really breaking out in Manhattan at that time. Keller was the one who fanned the flame of that revival, and that became Redeemer, such that there were prayer meetings of young people who were praying all night on Friday nights for the growth and renewal of the church that Keller didn't even know about until afterwards. It wasn't that he planned it. The people were doing it. God was already doing something in their lives, and he was able to foster that pour into it, teach through it. And Redeemer, you know, made a huge impact. I heard somebody say, I think it was Michael McAfee said the other day that when Keller got to Manhattan, it was maybe less than a percent or a 10th of a percent were evangelicals. And when Keller retired a few years ago, there were 5% evangelicals in Manhattan. Now that's not 100% 100% due to Tim Keller. It's not all due to him. Of course, right. all of it's really due to God. But he was part of what we should consider a great revival in American life in New York City. And so it's so fitting that before that, he had studied it. He had taught on it. His lectures at Westminster in the 1980s are really interesting pre-Redeemer, because you're hearing him lay out, what would you do in a circumstance where you are planning a church and asking God for revival. And then you see him actually go and do it in Manhattan. And so as you read a book like Center Church, you're seeing his fully formed, almost retrospective uh, perspective on renewal. But that's a thread that runs through his entire life, is revival, renewal, what happens when God wakes up people who think that they're believers, but really aren't believers, and they're convicted of their sin, and they begin to follow God wholeheartedly, there's a lot of Keller that is in that camp. You know, one thing I've thought a lot about lately, and Keller really, I think, sheds some interesting light on this. Uh, and, and I don't mean this comment to be disrespectful. I just want to step back and see if I, I think most people would agree with this. It just isn't the way you're used to thinking about it. But the story of someone who starts a mega church, a very large church, is a rather uninteresting topic to me. You have people all the way from, I'm not trying to polarize people here, but John MacArthur has a megachurch. So does Stephen Furtick. And let me throw one in you're not thinking of. So does Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan has an 11 million person megachurch, meaning that's how many people listen to him each week. So if you step back from just my perspective, there are an awful lot of people that build large followings, a quote, Mega church, if you will. That in and of itself is not terribly interesting to me. What's interesting about Tim Keller is how he went about doing it 
and what was the legacy? What would you say are some of the uniquenesses of how Keller went about his ministry that maybe sets him apart? Because otherwise you could say, yeah, great guy. He's another megachurch pastor. But I think there's more to this story than just another megachurch pastor. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. The The uniqueness of Tim Keller for most people is listening to his preaching and reading his books. You listen to his preaching. He's a really different kind of preacher, especially than you would get in our part of the country. He doesn't have any Baptist in him. He doesn't have what we would consider kind of a charismatic preaching gift. In fact, he got a C in preaching in seminary. (laughs) Uh, But he's a very compelling, thoughtful preacher. And in one of his lectures at Westminster uh, Seminary, he's talking about gospel preaching should be a mix of light and heat. It should both illuminate and warm. It should have passion and it should have doctrine. It should have thinking and it should have emotion. The more you listen to Keller, the more you realize how he's trying to do that. He's he's not all head. He's head and heart. But he, but he is very professorial. And that, and that works in Manhattan in a way that it probably doesn't work in some of the other contexts. I mean, he, he really was in the perfect place for him. God put him in the place where his gifts would be used best. And so I think in his preaching, that would be one of the things I would point to is that blend is one of the things that made him very effective. You know, I think you touched on something good there, because if you listen to him, he as a preacher in some ways is underwhelming. What impressed me most about his preaching is, and this is going to be a little hard to define, but when I listen to him preach, it becomes very clear to me that he does not think he can convert you. He preaches as though he absolutely believes that he is trying to set the table for the Holy Spirit to do something. And I know that's not very tangible, but every time I listen to him, he reminds me, don't forget, you are just setting the table for the Holy Spirit to do something. And I don't get that feeling with all preachers, uh, not to be disrespectful to them, but Keller always reminds me of that. And I think that's one of the powerful things about his preaching. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And he he talks a lot in Center Church and other places about how, how should you preach for revival and for renewal. And that's what, what you've said really nails it. You actually cannot bring that about. You should do what God commands you to do and let God do the rest of the work. Beneath the public ministry, the more you dive into what Keller was doing, and again, we're total outsiders in this. I've never even been to his church, wasn't a part of it in any way. But if you go on Gospel and Life and you look at some of their print materials, and this becomes clear in Colin Hansen's book as well, Tim Keller did a phenomenal amount of teaching with his people during the week. So like I said, his demon was in uh, diaconal ministry, ministries of mercy. Mm-hmm. And he would train people. I, I'm trying to remember what Colin Hansen says in the book. I think I think Makoto Fujimura, who was an early elder at Redeemer, talks about it was like a year-long course with a 500-page binder that they would go for two hours on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights or something. And he would teach through the qualifications for church leadership, the ministry of deacons, Mercy Ministries, 
he was a teacher through and through. He's a seminary professor, but he was a teacher in the church through and through. And when you go back and read some of these internal white papers that they put out at Redeemer, you see whether it's mercy ministries, church leadership, preaching, counseling, small groups. There's The small group mm-hmm. manual at Redeemer is on that website, and I think it's like 250 pages long. It's a book in and of itself about how they do small groups. So that's another thing I think is really important in Keller's legacy is he, he was in the weeds. He was willing to teach. He was willing to think through on a very practical level how the gospel works itself all the way through whatever it is you're doing as a church. There was no plug and play at Redeemer. It was all thought through, talked through, discussed, derived, uh, coached, put all the way down into their DNA, walked out in the ways that they were doing ministry there in Manhattan. I think that's a really important takeaway from his ministry and something that we can all learn from is he, it's almost like he took nothing for granted in that, and and not that they had to reinvent the wheel itself. The gospel was the same. The principles of church leadership are the same, but he went to great lengths to flesh those out in his own context. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. He's uh, a little bit like a John Wesley figure in that sense that he's not working just for impact today. He's trying to set things up so that people will carry on with this approach. And I think he was pretty effective at that. Because some of the most important things he did are probably going to end up being the non-popular things. Like, for example, everything you just talked about, I'll bet very few people know much about it because it hasn't been one of his best-selling books. And yet it probably will end up having the greatest long-term impact. Definitely. Definitely. I think he, he, the end of his life is going to have a long-term impact. He right. had cancer, I think, for about three years. He actually had cancer before that and was in remission. And then when he got the terminal diagnosis, I, I think it was maybe about three years, two and a half years, suffered very well. In fact, a lot of what you learned from Keller during that time was the difficulty of having terminal cancer, the impact that it made on his prayer life, the impact that it made in his marriage the impact it made in him thinking about what his priorities were with not very Mm -hmm. long to live. And I I think so often church leaders flame out or they have a moral failure or they get off track. And Keller was one of those guys that really persevered well to the very end. And I think that'll be a big part of his legacy. I do too. You know, Cole, one of the things that comes with celebrity, even though in Keller's point of view, I don't think he ever acted like a celebrity and I'm sure he, he really bought into that. But when you're a celebrity like that, he became kind of New York City's pastor. You're going to have to engage with a hostile, some of the hostile elements of the culture. And you're going to end up finding yourself uh, maybe butting heads to some extent with the culture. And I remember an interview uh, that he gave for the New York Times talking about, uh, I think it was with uh, Brooks. Anyway, did that. What is a Christian? And the yeah. idea of uh, who's Christoph, not Nicholas Kristoff. Kristoff, I'm sorry, you're right. Uh, it was Nicholas Kristoff. And I remember comparing Kristoff speaking with certain other pastors and Keller. And I thought Keller uh, didn't compromise an inch. And at the same time, he was still respectful. But his answer was the last thing that Kristoff wanted to hear. And so right. how, did, how would you rate him in... Being a cultural critic, I suppose, or coming head to head with the culture and the gospel. 
that that might be what he's uniquely best at on a on a large scale his cultural criticism his ability to synthesize a lot of ideas read the pulse of the culture i i think at heart what that comes down to is he had a very unique understanding of idolatry and the human heart he could trace cultural idols down with such specificity that you listen to him and you say yeah that that's real life that that really does measure up and and that matches what's going on and then when he did that on a cultural level you could see it it makes total sense the way he's explaining things and so as a mm-hmm. cultural critic i think he was really really insightful and and that's where i hope his legacy endures not just in what tim keller said but what he was doing and how he was doing it how he was taking the gospel the biblical anthropology and applying it out into the culture. And because of that, I think he was very good with people who were asking questions, skeptics, doubters, because he understood where they were coming from. And so he's very disarming. He's a great listener. If you listen to his series called Questioning Christianity, it's probably on Apple, anywhere you can get podcasts. I listen to it on Spotify. It's a lecture on a certain topic. And then it's a Q&A with people who are there. And I think the goal was to bring people who were skeptics and non-Christians. And what's interesting when you listen to it is he is not flimsy. He's he's not trying to please people when he answers something. He'll, he'll just say, I disagree with that. And he'll explain why. But he does it in a way that is just very accessible very loving, very understandable, very personable in conversation. I think drawn from the fact that he's had a million of those conversations. And so even when he's on a stage in front of a few hundred people, it still sounds like you're sitting down over coffee talking about concerns that you might have. Probably what he's best known for in this area is called the, the middle way. And I wanted you to speak a little bit to that because I think whether you would like to admit this or not, I think a lot of people see that same quality in your teaching that there's a middle way uh, or there's a third way. I mean, not a middle way. I mm-hmm. actually think that's one of the important differences. Right. There's a third right. way of approaching these kinds of questions and doubts and skeptics. So I don't know how much of that you learn from him and how much is just the way that you also think, but what do you appreciate about that in Tim Keller? Yes, th- this is a little bit of a controversial idea now, but it's something that I do value in, in if it's properly understood. First of all, it gets its title from the idea that in our culture, in American culture, this is a very American thought. This doesn't necessarily translate to other cultures, other nations. In America, we have a very dualistic, we've reduced ourselves to a dualistic society. You are either a conservative or a liberal. You are either a Democrat or a Republican. There are just two ways. That didn't used to be the case. Used to be there was more texture, but now Things have firmed up and you have to choose an allegiance. you got to pick up a flag and say, I'm on this side. Well, the, the term third way is something that was coined for Keller's approach, which says, I actually am not in either one of those camps. Now, first of all, a third way is not a compromise. It right. is not saying, I'll take a little bit of this and a little of that, and you're both partly right. That's not what the third way is. But the third way really is, I think a better way is the first way. And that is, it's all about what the Bible says. That's always been true. It's still been true. But the reason it's seen as as a little bit more of an arenic or a peaceful way of approaching it, I think Keller's favorite word was winsome. 
which means a kind of a cheerful, optimistic approach to a situation, is that the biblical view would say, you know what, it may be that one party is in America is right on social justice, and it may be that the other party is right on sexuality. And so instead of an either or, it got the term third way, meaning this is a different way. And you're right. I do teach that way. I teach politics that way that we just need to play a different game. Uh, you can't win either one of these from a biblical point of view. You need to play a different game. So I do think that he, he it's probably one of his most infuriating qualities, because when Christians have bought into the dualistic thing, they tend to criticize Keller but frankly, if you step back and analyze, his stances are biblical stances, whether they fit your party or not. And so right. the, I, I do value very much his commitment not to compromise, his commitment to, I'm going to go back and see what the Bible says, and I'm going to fall wherever that goes. And right. sometimes it's one of the parties, sometimes it's the other party. Yeah, and praising where people get things right. Because if you're coming yeah. from a totally different set of assumptions— and you do happen to overlap with someone, Keller was never afraid to say, this is right. And these people have gotten it right, even if they don't share those assumptions. But what makes him such a unique figure is he doesn't then say, and because they're right on this, or because the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I'm going to side right. with them on everything. Now, right. we've got our own set of premises. We've got our own agenda. We have our own marching orders. We can praise anybody who lines up with that at any point. But it doesn't mean that our allegiance is there or we're forced to side with them against people that we want to be co-belligerents against. It's like you said, we're playing a totally different game, different rules, different board, different pieces. But every now and then something really looks like a game that you're used to playing or every now and then a move looks very similar to something you would do somewhere else. And um, like I said, I misspoke earlier, what he's been criticized for is a middle way, which is kind of a way of compromise. Let's try right. and make both people happy. There's a big difference between that and the third way, which is we're actually operating from a different vantage point. We exactly. are not partisan, but we are principled and we have our own way of looking at things. And you know, Keller was so well-read that when he aligned with people that he maybe didn't align on other things, he would say it. But that didn't mean he had to agree on everything with anybody. And I think that's right. a very good Christian approach that we agree with God. We agree with what he said. We try to work that out as best we can. And we're charitable to other people, especially where we can agree and see some common grace or some truth. But we don't fall into the easy but difficult position of saying, these are my people and I'll believe whatever it is they say about this. Yeah, I agree with that. I think he really did believe that the church was his family, not a particular political party or cultural ideology. And that's true for a lot of Christians. I'm not bashing other Christians. I do think it made him, sometimes it made Christians uncomfortable with him. The liberals liked him occasionally and really hated him for his conservative stances, meaning his biblical stances. And I think sometimes conservative Christians uh, were frustrated with him that he wouldn't identify with a particular party because that party was more right than the other one. And that that's not the approach that Keller took. So I think sometimes he frustrated Christians. But at the end of the day, I think he's so admired and uh, by the by people at large is he didn't agree completely with any of them. But you have to admire the fact that he was true to true to what he understood the Bible to say. 
One of the things in my stage of life that I appreciate most about Keller is he stayed true to what he believed the Bible said. It's very fashionable uh, as you get a little older to soften or change your beliefs. It's happening to pastors at an alarming rate. Now, again, I'm not uh, dismissing all those pastors that this is not happening to, but I do think there have been a lot of high-profile cases where pastors have don't no longer believe what they believed 20 years ago. Keller took the time to, tr to understand what the Bible said, and he remained committed that to his very last breath, and I admire that. And I think even our culture has some admiration for that. Yeah, I think that I hope people capture some of that in the way that we learn from Tim Keller, mm -hmm. not trying to be just imitators of him, but going about things the way that he did. Like you said, keeping keeping the faith, applying it, faithfully stewarding it, contextualizing it, uh, but being God's people in the world. And I think that's one of Keller's great legacies. I think the other thing that sticks out to me about him is just how well-versed and well-read he was with the things that people were already thinking and talking about. Now, he's doing this on a little bit more of an intellectual level than a pop level. Right. But the final chapter in or one of the final chapters in Colin Hansen's book is called Rings on the Tree. And he talks about how if you look at Keller's influences, they he's he's not a parrot of any one person. He's like a tree that has rings that show different stages of development. And whether mm -hmm. that's you know, Ed Clowney, who he learned a lot from, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, among preachers and teachers, and then thinkers like James Davison Hunter, Charles Taylor, right. lots of these influences, Herman Bovink, lots of the people that he learned from when he was teaching and when he was in seminary. You look at it and you say, this is almost like a big mosaic of influences that he then synthesized for the purpose and the mission that God had given him, not just right. what God had given those other people. He took what was good, he was influenced, but ultimately he was driving all of those things toward what he felt God had called him to do. And I think if we would take that up, that would be a great enduring takeaway from Tim Keller's life is not just to be Tim Keller's or whoever else, whoever your person right. is, but like him to take their influence, learn from them, read widely, be influenced widely, and harness all of that towards what God has called you specifically to do and to fulfill the mission that you have been given, that would be a great legacy for Tim Keller. I, I agree. I think that would be a, a lasting legacy is not to try to be Tim Keller, but let's let's follow him as he followed Christ. I think his commitment to the Christ and the truth of the scriptures is something to emulate. And we will be fruitful like he was fruitful. Uh, maybe not in the same degree, maybe not in even quite the same way, but we will be fruitful in the way uh, he was fruitful. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.